0: Today's scripture is Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, And he even drew water for us, and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You may be seated.
1: As you're being seated, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, uh, we come again to your word. Would you prepare our hearts to be instructed by it? Would we be open to receive it with joy? uh, That we might be transformed by it, instructed and corrected by it, encouraged by it. Lord, I do pray that um, you would do a work in us, your people, for your glory. In your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, good morning. My name is John. I'm on the team here, one of the pastors here, and. um, As you just heard Red, we're continuing in our Exodus series, and we've made it through chapter one. Just uh, 39 more chapters to go. If you're not enjoying it, sorry, uh, we're going to be here. Uh, For those of you who haven't been with us, and you've just joined us, or maybe you've forgotten, let me just give us a brief uh, lay of the land, a brief summary of, of where we've been. Um, The book of Exodus begins uh, by showing us that God is in the process of fulfilling his promises that he made to a man called Abraham and his family uh, earlier in the book of Genesis. He said to Abraham that he would uh, be fruitful and that his family would be multiplied and they would fill the land and that's exactly what we see happening at the start of the book of Exodus. But last week, uh, we saw that this fruitfulness, this multiplication, this strength among the Israelites uh, wasn't seen as a good thing by everyone involved. Last week we were introduced to Pharaoh and the Egyptians who saw these foreigners living in their land as a threat to national security. And so in active opposition, we might say against uh, not only the Israelites, but against the promises of God, Pharaoh does two things. First, he enslaves the Israelites, which made them stronger. And then second, he institutes a policy of infanticide. He uh, says that they, the, the boys who are born should be murdered. And uh, well, last week... We saw glimpses, didn't we? We saw glimpses of hope and of light. We saw glimpses of defiance against the tyranny and the evil. It concluded with Pharaoh having the last word. In verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And so this is the context of the scene that we're entering today. It's one of violence and one of oppression that is brought about by the antagonist of the story, Pharaoh. But if last week we were introduced to the antagonist, the villain of the story, this week we are being introduced to the protagonist, the hero of the story. Now, um, Many of us might assume, I'm just going to get this out of the way, off the bat, many of us might assume that when I say that, I'm talking about Moses. Um, And that would make sense, because in many ways, this entire chapter is all about Moses, isn't it? And he is indeed a hero in the story of Exodus. But I want to suggest today that the protagonist, the main protagonist in Exodus is ultimately not Moses, it's God. It's God. It's God. And we're going to see that most clearly, I think, next week and the weeks to come, but hopefully it's apparent today. You see, the conflict in Exodus, and there there is a conflict, we're introduced to a conflict right at the start, the conflict of Exodus is not ultimately a conflict between Pharaoh and Moses or the Egyptians and the Israelites, it's ultimately a conflict between God and all those who would oppose him. And so the question of Exodus is, are you going to be on God's side or not? You're going to be on God's side or not? And as we'll see, even Moses himself has to answer that question. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover. You just heard how much is read, lots of stories, lots to discuss. So we're going to get right into it. I've got three points today that I think uh, rightly break up the narrative and help to communicate what is happening, what's the big picture of what's happening. So, point one today God saves Moses. Two, Moses leaves Egypt. Three, God will save Israel. God saves Moses. Moses leaves Egypt. And God will save Israel. Let's look again at at verse 1. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it in it with bitumen and pitch she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him now the daughter of pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river she was she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it when she opened it she saw the child and behold the baby was crying She took pity on him and said, "'This is one of the Hebrews' children.' "'Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, "'Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women "'to nurse the child for you?' "'And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "'Go.' "'So the child went and called the child's mother. "'And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "'Take this child away and nurse him for me, "'and I will give you your wages.'" So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. In these opening verses of chapter 2, we're given what we might call the infancy narrative of Moses, who is born to Israelite slaves but adopted to Egyptian royalty. And even in Moses' early life, we see these indications, don't we, of, of who he will be and what God will do ultimately through him when he grows up. Who Moses will become, we might say, is being hinted at all the way through this narrative. And there's lots of clues. I won't go through them all, but he is saved through water. Just as he will later lead the Israelites through the waters of the Red Sea. His name in Hebrew means to draw out or to deliver, as he will later deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And all of these clues are indications to us of what God has, even though God hasn't been mentioned in the story, we're to see that God is at work. You notice this, God God hasn't really been mentioned yet in the story a few times, but, but not really. But what we are to see is that God is at work. You see, the infancy narrative of Moses is not a combination of coincidences and circumstances and individual actions that accidentally precipitates this great event of the Exodus. No, what is happening in our text is all part of a divine plan. It's all part of a divine plan. This is not the consequence of blind fate or even human will. Yet even though God is not mentioned, we can see his hand at every step, at every stage, his sovereign hand at work. Because our God is a God who is working and willing and choosing and calling and orchestrating history. So that even when he appears to be absent, he is not. And even when Pharaoh appears to be in control, he is not. Because God is at the helm of history. Because God is at work in and through this whole scene. And I think it's important that we start here. Because for us to understand this text, or indeed the Bible, or indeed our lives, we need to know two things about God. First, God is not hindered by evil. God is not hindered by evil. Even with the backdrop of this scene, as dark as it is, There is no person or power in this world that can stop his plans and purposes. Do you know that? So first, it shows us that God is not hindered by evil. But second, neither is he helped by us. Controversial. Neither is he helped by us. It might sound harsh, but, but I think it's helpful to frame this story and our lives in light of who God is. You see... Before we start talking about these amazing women in the story, and we will, we'll get to these amazing women, and they are amazing women. The right way to think about this scene is not that they were assisting God in his plans, but rather they were joining God in what he was already doing. It's actually a really good way to conceive of the Christian life. You see, it is God who is at work bringing salvation And redemption. He is recreating. He is restoring. But the way God works is that in his love and his kindness towards us, he calls us to participate with him in what he has already determined to do. So with that framing, let's talk about these amazing women. In many ways, chapter 2 picks up from where we left off last week, doesn't it? Last week we saw these two amazing characters, Shifra and Puah, the two midwives who who said no to the evil commands of Pharaoh. And this week we're introduced to three more women who act just as courageously, just as compassionately. First, we're introduced to Moses' mum, the mum. Although she's not named in this text, we'll later find out she's called Jochebed who in love for her son, bravely hides him from Pharaoh. Second, we're introduced to uh, Moses' sister, who also is not named in this scene, but we find out later is called Miriam, who in care for her brother watches over him and intercedes for him. And last, we're introduced to Pharaoh's daughter, who in compassion for this baby, takes Moses as her own, even in defiance against her own father. It's an amazing story. When you think about it, you've got a mother, a sister, and a daughter, each of them displaying something of the character of God in the scene. Each of them placing themselves in danger for the sake of this vulnerable child. Each of them playing their part in joining in with what God was orchestrating in the world. It's beautiful. I was talking to a friend of mine just this week about this story, and he used the analogy of a stained glass window. I'm sure you've seen it in the old churches. I kind of wish we had a couple in here, maybe next year. Um, you've seen the stained glass windows where you have different shapes of glass of various colors, each with a different part to play in displaying the whole of what the window portrays. And I think that's what we're being shown here today. Different women with different roles and a different influence. Passing this child along in love and compassion. Each playing their part to participate in his salvation. And when you think about that, it's not just a good way to think about this scene. It's also a glorious picture of the church, isn't it? Where each of us, each of you, plays a part. Various spheres of influence, various gifts, various abilities. But collectively, like a stained glass window, we display the glory of God as God shines through us collectively to the world. You know, this this scene made me reflect on all of the people that God has used in my life. All of the people that God has used and is using in in saving and upholding and preserving and protecting me. I think of the prayers of my mum. I I think of the example of my dad. The, The encouragement of my two brothers who walk with the Lord. Stand shoulder to shoulder with me. I think of all the people who have held me when I was weak and vulnerable, who God used to preserve and protect me. And I thank God for that. I thank God for you, those of you who play part. It also makes me reflect on the other side of that, of the joy and the privilege of playing a small part in other people's lives to share the gospel with them, to share the love of Jesus with them, standing with the broken, fighting against injustice with them. Christ said, these women played a small part in God's big plan, and it should be an encouragement to us, is that that's what we're called to do as the church. To play a small part in God's big plan. To join in with what God is already doing in the world. That's what we're called to do as the church. So point one, God saves Moses, but in his love and his kindness to us, he uses ordinary, humble, and courageous people as his instruments for grace in the world. Point two, Moses leaves Egypt. As I said earlier, this text is littered with allusions to what God is planning to do in and through Moses in his life. There's so many references to it, we won't go into them, but not only are there allusions to what Moses will do later in his life, there's also a tension in this text, isn't there? There's a tension of what we might say, identity. There's a tension of identity. You see, as, as a result of, of the strange circumstances of, of Moses' upbringing, Moses is a conflicted man. In one sense, he's an Israelite. By birth, he's an Israelite, but for all intents and purposes, he's an Egyptian. He has been raised in in the culture and the ways and the wisdom of Egypt. And so being born to an Israelite slave, but having become Egyptian royalty, the question that he has before him and we have before us is, will he remain in the house of Pharaoh or will he return to his father's house? Will he continue in Egypt or will he return to his people? Will he indeed become the man who God has called him to be? In fact, some scholars suggest that even Moses' name suggests this tension of identity that I'm talking about. As I said before, Moses in Hebrew means to draw out and deliver. But it also works in Egyptian apparently as well. In the Egyptian language, Moses could also mean son. And so it works in, in both cultures, just like when you move to another country and you name your children, which I have done, and it has to work in both settings. You know? You can't go back home to England and call your son I don't know, Brody or something. Like it just doesn't work in England. I'm sorry if you're called Brody. You know what I mean. Lots of you are from different cultures. You come here and you have to find a name that works in both settings. And so even his name indicates that there is a tension within him between the worlds of Egypt and Hebrew culture. And when we think about it in this way, there's a lot at stake here, isn't there? There's a lot at stake because the choice that he has to face between His identity as a Hebrew and his identity as an Egyptian is a choice between royalty and slavery. It's a choice between comfort and suffering, a choice between being the oppressor and being the oppressed. Ultimately, it will be a choice between the true God and all the idols of Egypt. And it's in this tension that we read the story in verse 11. New story. One day when when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. Now, I don't know how you feel about this story. I know how I feel about this story. Uh, Often the way that we read this story is with the question, is Moses justified in what he has done? Is Moses justified in what he has done? Was he right to kill the Egyptian? And as such, our takeaway often from this story is that Moses is sinful here. And Moses is sinning. At best, he's immature, getting ahead of the call of God in his life. Usually we see it as killing the Egyptian was wrong, and it shows that Moses is a sinful, weak, and imperfect Savior, and he's not ready to be the Savior that God wants him to be. But I think that misses the point of this text. I think that misses the point of what is going on here. In fact, I want to argue that rather than viewing this story negatively in the life of Moses, we should see this event as a pivotal point in his life in the right direction. Not in the wrong direction, in the right direction. So rather than seeing this scene negatively, I want to argue that we should see this as a positive event in the life of Moses. And I know that this might be controversial but because he kills a man. Uh, But because it's controversial, I've got six reasons why I think I'm right. And now I know this might be overkill, but some of you, about three of you, are going to appreciate this. And so ready with your notes. Okay, six clues in our text to help us understand this scene. First, there is a reference right at the beginning of this story about identity. Verse 11 says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. And looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Repetition there of his people, I think, indicates to us that this connection with his people is at the foreground of what we're supposed to be uh, understanding here. This is all about his identification with his people. Second, in verse 12, when it says, He looked this way and that way, and seeing no one, we often interpret this as he was concerned that someone is going to see what he does. Now in some ways that, that might be true, but what's interesting here is that this language, this, this very language, is used only in one other place in the Bible, and it's in Isaiah 59, that says this. The Lord saw it, that is evil and injustice and oppression, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man. Same same words. That there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. So here in the book of Isaiah, God sees injustice in the world, and it says that he he looks around, he sees that there is no one who would step in, and so he himself steps in. And so in our text, I don't think that the point is that Moses is looking around and hoping that no one will see him doing this evil act. I think that he is looking around and seeing that no one is doing anything about the injustice, and so he steps in. Third, the word used for striking down in verse 12, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand, is used elsewhere in Exodus most noticeably in describing how God will strike down the Egyptians. Now again, this is not to say in any way that Moses is justified in his actions, but it is to say that what I think we are being shown here is a preview of what God will justifiably do to the Egyptians because of their sin. Fourth, This scene is one of two saving scenes. You might have noticed this when it was read. Just after this event, when Moses has fled to Midian, we read this. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Both of these scenes then seem to focus not on the unjust actions of Moses, but on his actions against injustice. Fifth, you still with me? Yeah. (laughs) New Testament, Stephen in the book of Acts, when he's preaching, he says this of this story. He says, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Do You see that? He was instructed in the way of Egypt. There's a change. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So Stephen here doesn't focus on whether or not Moses is justified in his actions. In fact, he interprets this event as the beginning of God's salvation for Israel as Moses' heart turns towards God. Turns towards his oppressed people and towards the heart of God to redeem them. Six, and finally, I know I've convinced you already, but I've started so I'll finish. Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with, his people, with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. It's a very interesting verse. The author of Hebrews here is saying something. He's saying that in this, in this moment, Moses chose slavery over royalty. He chose suffering over comfort. He chose to identify with the oppressed rather than remaining as the oppressor. So what's the point in me taking you through all of these six points other than just show you I did a bit of work this week? I think it's important because I think this unlocks for us what is going on in this text. Because I think we're supposed to understand this scene like this. That Moses... Who is raised as an Egyptian in this moment, however imperfectly, by faith, takes a step towards God and his heart. And what this does is it begins in him a journey of identity transformation. As he exchanges his identity as an Egyptian with his identity as an Israelite. You know, this whole scene we might say this whole text, whole of chapter 2, might be described as a mini-personal exodus for Moses. As a mini-personal exodus for Moses. Before he leads the people of Israel, he himself has an exodus. Think about it. Just as in the exodus, in the actual exodus, God will strike the Egyptians. He will free the Israelites from Egypt. He will draw them into the wilderness so that they might meet God and worship God. Moses, in striking the Egyptian, is being freed from Egypt and is drawn into the wilderness where next, me- next week he is going to meet God in order that he might worship him. Do you see that? He- he's on a journey out of Egypt, just as he will lead the people out of Egypt. And this journey we might describe not simply as Moses leaving Egypt, but as Egypt being removed from him. As all of the ways of Egypt, as the idols and the ideologies of Egypt would need to be discarded so that he could discover who the true God is and who he is in light of that God. And this personal journey of Moses is going to happen corporately with the Israelites. In Christ city, this is the journey that we are all on as Christians. Do you know that? We're on this journey. As the idols and the ideologies of this world are being discarded and abandoned, as we discover who the true God is and who we are in light of him, we too are having Egypt removed from us. Christ said, this is another picture of the Christian life. You see, the Christian life is a journey of freedom from the bondage of sin. The sin that, in the book of Hebrews says, hinders us and entangles us, ensnares us, holds us back from being the people that we were called to be. And so here, we have Moses leaving Egypt, but this is a journey that we are all on. We are on an exodus. As Egypt is being removed from us, as we are unlearning the ways of Egypt and we are learning the ways of Yahweh, that's the Christian life. That's the Christian journey. God saves Moses and then he brings him on a journey of identity transformation so that he could be the person he is called to be. Okay, final point today. Point three, God will save Israel. In our closing verses today, the author writes this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read this, and go through it, read it again, these verses seem a little out of place. They, they seem a little out of place to me, like they should have been mentioned earlier, because they've been enslaved for a long time. They, they, these verses should have come when, when we first heard about the oppression. We first heard about Pharaoh and the slavery. And not only does it feel a little bit late, as if, if God has only just heard the cries of his people, as if it kind of takes a while to get up to heaven, you know, the cries. Not only that, but the, but the language of remembering makes us assume or think that his, his people had maybe slipped his mind. Like, oh yeah, my covenant with Abraham. Now I want to be clear here, that is not what is happening in this text. It's a terrible reading of what is happening. Why? Because God is not a man that he would forget something have something slip his mind. And as I said at the beginning, we have seen already, haven't we, God's sovereign hand at work through individuals all the way through orchestrating this entire event. And So it's not as if he hasn't been involved up until now. So what is going on in this text? Well, I think these closing verses are meant to serve as a signpost for us. A signpost that is showing us something. You see, the language of remembering in the Bible, specifically as it relates to God, doesn't suggest that he is recalling something that he has forgotten, but it is a signal to the reader that he is about to act in a decisive and conclusive way. That, that, that's what it means. And, and you see this throughout the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples. Genesis 8, 1, in, in the story of Noah... When the evil of the world has become so pervasive, if you know the story, the evil of the world has become so pervasive in the world, it says that God remembered Noah. And then what happens? God steps in. God steps in. If you know the story, God judges the wicked with a flood and saves Noah and his family. Again, in Genesis 19, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, some of you might know it. There's these evil cities. And again, the evil of the cities has become so pervasive, it says God remembered Abraham and God stepped in. God judges the cities by destroying them and he saves Lot and his family from that destruction. So there's, there's a pattern here, isn't there? There's a pattern that emerges that signals to us that when it says God remembers, we are to anticipate the action of God. That he is going to act and that there will be judgment for the oppressor and there will be deliverance for the oppressed. And this is what is happening here. We've been given a signpost in the bleak darkness of the situation. A signpost, a signal that says God will save Israel in a decisive and a conclusive way. And we're going to see this over the next few weeks. Cressida, this reminds us. That we have a God who acts. We have a God who is working all the time. In and through his church. In the world. But there are moments where God steps in. In a decisive and conclusive way. Christ City, our God is a God who hears our cries. Who hears your cries. He sees our suffering. He sees our pain. He's also a God who remembers, who remembers and therefore acts. You know, that's why these verses don't just point us to God's decisive actions in the Exodus event that we are going to see, but they also point us further forward to God's decisive and conclusive actions on the cross. As God remembered. As God remembers His covenant where God heard the cries of a world oppressed by sin and saw the evil that enslaved his children. And so what does he do? Just like Moses, he leaves his throne and identifies with the oppressed. He leaves his throne and identifies with us in our sin and our brokenness and seeing that no one else was around to step in, he steps in looking around that there was no one who could bring salvation, he himself steps in. But the difference is Jesus didn't strike, he was stricken. Why? Well, because on the cross, he was to act in the most decisive and conclusive way against the oppression of sin by taking it upon himself for our sake. Christ says, God is at work. I hope you know that. Even when it doesn't appear to be the case. Even when it appears that Pharaoh is in control. God is at work through your humble activity. As we each collectively work together and join in what God is doing in the world. But God is at work in a way that one day he will also remember and say enough. We too anticipate a day. A day that Jesus will return and say, enough. And he will judge the living and the dead. Christ city, our God is a God who hears. Our God is a God who sees. Our God is a God who remembers. And therefore, he acts. Would you stand as we respond?